Welcome to The Hoop Commitment. I'm your host, Mike Nielsen. Join me every week to get inside the greatest minds in basketball nutrition, training, and leadership to elevate your game and improve the way you eat, train, and lead. Welcome to episode 81. I went to Seattle this past weekend, paying respect to my former coach who just passed away, Larry Stewart. His son Josh was my best friend since kindergarten, and so Larry was not only my high school coach, he was also my YMCA basketball coach growing up. And it was a beautiful service, full of family and friends sharing their favorite memories with Larry, both on and off the court. And it was easy to see that Larry's life was so much more than just being a coach. He was a patient father, loving husband, a fun friend, and just an all-around nice guy. But it also hit home the importance of sport and the impact a coach can have on your life. In addition to helping me become a good person, Larry also helped me become a better basketball player. He gave me a love for defense and team basketball, which is still a huge part of me and what I hope to pass on to my kids. And we all know that basketball isn't life, but it sure can be an important part of it. And the best part of the day was after the service, we went to Larry's son's house and we shot hoops all afternoon, and I got to see his legacy of love and basketball carry on through his grandkids. And today's episode is another great example of how basketball can bring a lifetime of joy, even if you don't end up as a pro player or a coach. Jess Walter is the author of nine books, most recently the national bestseller, The Cold Millions, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Beautiful Ruins. His book, The Zero, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Citizen Vince was the winner of the Edgar Award. His work has been published in 32 languages, and his short fiction has appeared three times in Best American Short Stories. And on my road trip to Seattle for the funeral, I just finished his audiobook, The Financial Lives of the Poets, which was great. And I think you'll love this interview because Jess shares how the same principles that helped him create a successful writing career, things like preparation, routine, and hard work, are the same valuable traits he still uses to this day on the basketball court. Here's Jess Walter. Jess, welcome to the Hoop Commitment Podcast. How you doing? I'm good, Mike. I'm so thrilled. I've been waiting for the call. It's like I've been called up to varsity. I'm so excited. Oh, you're way past varsity. You're D1 <laughs> now. You're a zag. <laughs> I wish. I'm an eagle. Sorry, I wish I was a zag. But Well, I, um, I don't know. I mean, that's when we first met was back in the 90s yeah. in Gonzaga's Fieldhouse. I was that's a right. young 18, 19-year-old. You were the seasoned veteran coming in, pushing me around. What was your hoop dream like growing up? Oh, man. It's funny because I chose basketball as like, all right, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be one of those guys who's a star at every sport. And so I chose basketball almost aesthetically. Like I'm watching Gail Goodrich with this just beautiful left-handed release. I liked the way it looked. And I, it's funny, Gonzaga's chasing Indiana because that's the team I remember watching that Indiana team win the championship. And I had a rolled up ball of socks and we had a window well that was my basket. And the little black and white TV playing Quinn Buckner and Scott May, 1976. And I'm just shooting left-handed. I'm right-handed, but I'm shooting like Gail Goodrich. I'm shooting a ball of socks into a window well. And it's like, this is what I want to do. And so 
Uh, you know, I got a stick in my eye when I was five and I wasn't allowed to play anything. I had to wear an eye patch, so I don't have any vision on my left side. And I was the smallest kid. I picked the total wrong sport, but I loved it so much that I would dribble to and from school. I would go to camps. Poor coaches would be like, what do we do with this kid? <laughs> you know. And I still remember running a drill in high school and where I'm in the key and I'm I got my guy in the ball and I'm doing, I'm moving my head side to side. And my high school coach said, Walter, stop moving your head. And someone said, well, coach, he can't see out of his left eye. And, and I saw this look on his face like, oh crap, I have a one-eyed point guard. <laughs> you know. So for me, it was always a kind of overachievement. And, but I never stopped loving like the smooth players and jump shots. You know, the NBA now, a lot of people complain because it's not physical, but it's the game watching Clay and Steph is the game I always dreamed of just floating around looking for a sweet jumper, you know? So, but I, I made my high school varsity team and I think because I never got great, I also never had very far to fall. And so I kept playing almost at a pretty high level all the way. I still go shoot 100 jumpers a day, sometimes 200, just go to the park and shoot. So it's been kind of a lifelong love of just the flow and feel of the game. And, and I can watch anyone play basketball and be right back in that place. And then, so then, you know, to live in Spokane in this place where it's a kind of faith for people and a combination of hard work and playing the game the right way. You know, like my brother and I, we just know when the ball, how the ball, ball should flow, how it shouldn't stick. You watch certain teams and you're like, that's how the game should be played. We had a, a guy, a friend move here and we call him the third Walter brother because he has that same ethos. And the three of us have played basketball and rec leagues and together. And we played throughout the pandemic, a game we called social distance, no contact basketball. And so, yeah, it's been the most amazing companion through my whole life. But you weren't always a star. You got to tell me about <laughs> no. silky shorts uh, because I think in today's world, yeah. not only am I a strength coach and I work with high level players, but I'm just a dad working with his little second grader and seventh grader. Yeah. And I think so many of us parents get caught up in, are our kids not the best? And are they going to be on the best team? And are they a starter? And I love talking to you because you're still getting 100 jumpers up a day. Yeah. But you weren't the star necessarily early on. Not at all. No. By the time I chose this sport, I was already kind of runty. I was the smallest kid. I was four feet eight and had an eye patch and big, thick glasses and did not look like a basketball player. My neighbor had played at Arizona State briefly. And um, a guy named Mike Eaton, a Spokane Valley legend. And Mike would just show me like, here's how to use your shoulder. Here's, you know, just all these little tricks that he developed. And so, but I was I'm in seventh grade. We had, it was one of those giant junior highs that didn't cut. So we had like 36 players. So the first 12 got uniforms and then they scrounged through the attic and found the old uniforms from the fifties. So they were like silk with a little belt. And at the time it wasn't the big, big shorts, but we didn't want these blousy shorts either. And they were big blousy, silky shorts, but that, that was the next 12. And then the last 12, we had to wear our PE clothes. So I would show up in the EVJHPE t-shirt, you know, number 56 in my gray PE t-shirt and be at the end of the bench. And we'd starters, the first 12 would play, and then they'd have a fifth quarter for the 
next 12 and then sixth quarter, you know, which was all right. And we would just get out and run around. And from seventh grade by eighth grade, I was in the next 12. And by ninth grade, I was starting on the ninth grade team. And by JV, my friend and I were the ozone brothers because we had these high arcing shots that our coach would say, you're going to punch a hole in the ozone, (laughs) bring it down a little. Then I made varsity my senior year and I was never going to be all stayed. I was never going to be, but I still had this dream that if I dribbled to and from school, if I went to camps, that some college was going to find me. And I think for all athletes, there's a moment when you hit the ceiling, you know, when you realize this is as far as I'm going in this sport. And so I have to say my senior year was kind of crushing when I thought I knew what a triumph it was to get from the PE close to the coach putting me in to go guard somebody or to bring the ball down because we're facing the press. Even though I wasn't a starter on my high school team, I, I felt like pretty triumphant that I was one of the 12 best guys. I watched all these guys get cut my senior year who had been above me on the bench. And so that felt like enough. And then I saw my high school coach at Hoopfest probably seven or eight years ago. And he just said, you're the last one still playing. Um, Of all the guys he coached, I was still out there playing. And that felt as triumphant to me as if I, we had won state, you know, because for me, it was a lifelong sport. It was going to be the thing I did to keep me healthy and to stay in touch with men that I cared about, that we could commune on the basketball court in ways we can't other ways. And so, yeah, that really meant something that my coach came to watch my hoop fest game. Uh, what a cool story. Now, at the yeah. same time, are you loving writing or does this come later on? No, same time. I When people would ask what I wanted to be, I would say, oh, I'm going to be an NBA point guard and then write books after that. And so, and I, and I really did, you know, I had one of those dads who said, you can be anything you, you want to be. And I think the only ridiculous thing was that I kind of believed him, <laughs> you know, um, but I appreciated that kind of confidence. And I have to say, It didn't work out in basketball, but it worked out as a writer. I was putting that same kind of commitment into writing and not out of a sense that it will lead somewhere, but out of the love for it. And I think I realized that with basketball too, that of course your goal is to win and to to make the varsity and all those things. But in the end, you're not going to do it if you don't love it. Uh, And that was the same with writing. It was as unlikely that a kid from the Spokane Valley, blue collar kid, first generation college student, first male in my family to graduate high school. Neither of my grandfathers or my dad was even a high school graduate, real working class. Both of my grandfathers have been hobos in the 30s. So it's almost as unlikely that that kid is going to be a novelist and, and have that life as play basketball. And so I think that you know, my dad and my mom instilling in me that if you work hard, you can succeed. And I did succeed at basketball. I think you have to have your own measure of what it is, what success in basketball is. And we always think like we're going to be the winner. Well, it's a zero sum game. Someone loses every time. And I'm the guy, we always know who the winners are. I've probably lost 64% of the games I've played. And I don't feel bad about it at all. I would have been one of the best Washington general. I would have just loved being on the court watching the uh, Globetrotters score, you know. And I would have taken great joy in the uh, watching Metalark pass the ball between my legs. I just don't ever mind it you know, which probably didn't make me the greatest high school player that I understood that someone's got to lose. But um, I think as a novelist, it's a much better way to live. 
Well, this is a conversation I actually just had with my last podcast guest. Really? Yeah. We spoke about the idea of you can't be anything that you want to be. And I really have a hard time with that. I mean, I get the concept, but when I hear that, I actually think about a person just like you, which is people say they want to be a basketball player. Well, not everyone can be. And I said, why not? Now, can everyone play in the NBA? And I'm like, well, that's not about being a basketball player. If you really love basketball, you want to play at a level that fits your skill set. And so, you know, if I really love basketball, I'm not going to have a great time playing with kindergartners, you know, even though I win every game. And I'm probably not going to have a great time playing in the NBA All-Star game with the best people in the world. I won't be able to get a shot up. Right. You know, and so I think about a person like you and why can't you be anything you want to be? You know, people love writing. Why can't they write? I mean, I think the question is, what makes you that thing? And writing is a great example. You know, a lot of people want to be a writer, but they don't want to write. And to me, I was a writer the minute I picked up a pen and started writing. It's the simplest thing, as wrote in my journal. Other people's external views of my success, I can't control. Um, I couldn't control what my coach thought when he realized that he had a one-eyed point guard. (laughs) I can tell you that when I played rec league, my brother and all my friends would run down the right side of the court on fast breaks, assuming I couldn't see them on on my bad side. (laughs) But I think my measure of doing something is doing it. Yeah, some of that's beyond your control after that. But as a writer, there were it took me seven years to sell my first short story as a fiction writer. I'm sending out short stories to magazines and I'm dribbling to and from school and I'm going to camps. And um, But again, I think I was never very results oriented. I think I was always process oriented. That feeling of just letting go is a nice jump shot, just going and shooting. And the same thing about writing, you talked about your love for music. And I have, as a writer, I have thought a lot about the way musicians approach it. No musician ever says I'm going to work. They say I'm going to play. Um, No basketball player. What do we do? We play. If you can get the joy out of playing, then you're doing the right, then you're doing the thing you love. If if at some level it connects you with this childhood version of yourself that just loved what they were doing. And so when I think about writing, I think of it musically. I think I'm sitting down to create a riff. If you had a guitar in your office and you just picked it up and strummed it, looking for hooks and looking for melodies and looking for bridges, that's often how I write. I sit down and I think, what if there was two brothers in Spokane in 1909 and they were hobos like my grandfather? And then the the notes that I use are the words that I love. I read books from that time and I see that hobos were called bindle stiffs and I just love that. And I see a description where they would define themselves that a hobo is one who wanders and works. A tramp is one who wanders and dreams. And a bum is one who wanders and drinks. And I want to just write about the distinction between those, you know, the tramping versus hoboing versus bumming in 1909. And pretty soon you're just writing these things that feel like riffs, that feel like melodies. And then you sort of connect it with narrative. And I feel sort of guilty when other writers talk about my discipline, because I do write every day and I have worked so hard at this, but I've really played so hard at this. I love the, I love the aesthetics of it. I love doing it. And if you love doing something, then you will succeed at some level, maybe not the level that the outside world names as a success, but 
I honestly think my failure in basketball taught me a great lesson about that because I came away loving it just as much as if I'd won. I remember when I realized that a sophomore on my high school team was a better point guard than I was. And I thought, yeah, he's probably going to get more playing time. He has a better future. Um, He can see the left side of the court. Uh, He's two inches taller than me. I was the only guy under six foot on my varsity. And that moment is painful, but then if you keep loving basketball, you know what I loved more than anything was in practice, beating the crap out of that sophomore, you know, and uh, scoring and scoring at will on him because I also knew that I could pull right up on him and he was a little slow to get at the jumper, you know. So I still think the joy of the game, realizing that I didn't need to be the biggest success to enjoy it. And that came through with writing too. Love how you said a lot of people want to be writers, but they don't want to write. And that rang yeah. true to me because yeah, I want to write this book, but I don't <laughs> like writing every day. And I see yeah. that in so many people with the basketball. They want to they yeah. want to shoot like Steph Curry. They want to play in the NBA, but they don't necessarily get to see the, all the work that I get to see these guys yeah. and gals do on the basketball court. And tell me about your process for writing, because it has to be similar as far as preparation for basketball or versus preparation for writing. Yeah, I think there are some similarities. You know, one of the big differences is there's no score at the end of a novel. And so you can have success without numeric proof of it in a way. And so I think that appeals to my aesthetic side. But the work that you put in, there are no great writers who weren't great readers first. They're just aren't. You can have perfect pitch as a singer and still have to work at it. So there are definite advantages you can have. But usually, you know, and I was a kid who just loved books. I loved the way they transported me. And then you want to recreate the effect of those stories in your own writing. Steph Curry didn't shoot 500 jumpers a day only out of work ethic. He also really loved shooting jumpers. And that love probably, you know, came from watching his dad, Dell. And Dell's came from watching whoever he loved watching shoot. And so you fall in love with watching the thing, and then you fall in love with the act of doing it. So for me, my writing is pretty simple. I wake up 5.30 this morning uh, before this. I woke up at 5.30. I made myself a big coffee and a giant cookie. We have, I have these cookies that I defrost. And then I sit in a, either on that couch or in that comfy chair over there and I pick up something to read to emulate. And then I read while I drink my coffee. And then I sit down with my journal where I've written my notes and I just start writing. And I've done that every day for 30 some years. Even when I had another job, I would try to write short stories and work on them. And it's the parallel of shooting 300 jumpers a day and your writing gets better. You get closer to the creative part of yourself that can do the thing. You aren't blocking yourself in any way. You're just, you don't think like, how do I do this? What do I do? You're in a different part of your mind that is just following through with the thing you want to do. At some point you fall in love with doing it though. You fall in love with the process of it. And it's still painful. You still get rejections. I have been rejected by the New Yorker magazine every year of my writing career for 20 some years. I still send them a story probably once a year, once every two years, I'll send them a short story. And it's kind of the holy grail for short story writers. And I've been accepted in every other magazine. Three of the stories rejected by the New Yorker were chosen for best American short stories. So it's like I made the NBA all-star game without getting picked up by the Lakers, you know, but, and so I've had that level of success, but I also know that a big part of it is aspiration, that you still have to have things that you want 
to prove to yourself you can do. So I keep writing short stories and sending them and, and working on novels. And, and then the, the ideas kind of coalesce and pretty soon all I can think about is the novel I'm working on. I can't wait to get out to the desk to find out what happens to those characters. Well, you mentioned there's not necessarily a score you know, yeah. when, when writing. But there is that piece of it is, is this going to get published? Is it going to get picked up by a journal? How do you deal with the confidence piece? Because that's got to shake you a little bit. I think about music. I love playing guitar and yeah. singing. I love it for myself, but I'm scared to share it with other people because I don't think I'm that good. You know, like that, what, what will they think? Will they think my voice is terrible? How, how do you handle that confidence piece? It's difficult sometimes, I think, as a somewhat successful adult to think back to when you weren't as confident. So that's the first thing is I think I've proven to myself that I can get there. Uh, and there were all these steps along the way. You know, I remember one of the first reviews in a big national publication, I was driving my kids somewhere and my wife called me and said, um, you might want to pull over. The Washington Post review just came out and they compared you to F. Scott Fitzgerald. And, and uh, so there are moments like that. And then finding out it was a National Book Award finalist, one of the five best books of the year, um, having Beautiful Ruins hit number one on the New York Times bestsellers. There are all these sort of external moments that do beef up your confidence. So I have to rewind to before all that to remember how I dealt with the failure of those seven years, novels that weren't reviewed. And I would take a big hit to my confidence and it would hurt. It would be physically painful. Um, but I keep a writing journal and I would write in there, I'm not doing it for them, I'm doing it for me. And then I would be back at the desk the next day. Part of it was to prove them wrong. There is a little bit of that, as it is with athletes. But I was always more successful when it wasn't about them and it was about what I want. Plato, the philosopher, had this idea that there are ideal things. I imagine that an ideal platonic basketball game where zero turnovers and the ball moves. Actually, this Gonzaga team, everyone's a while, I think, they played like six minutes of platonic basketball. We used to run plays where there was no defense. You know, you're just getting a play. It's like, all right, then you're, this guy's going to screen, backdoor cut here, layup. And I'll watch it, I'll think, it's like they're running plays with no defense, you know, layup, layup. So every once in a while, I, this team is, I've seen a few flashes of platonic basketball, no ego, no the ball just. And I would imagine platonic versions of the short stories I want to write, a perfect version of this thing that exists out there. My job is to go find it, not to create it, but it's already out. And so I think I would return in those low confidence periods, I would return to this idea that I love playing and I want to find the perfect song. I want to find the perfect basketball game. I want to find the perfect short story. And if I don't, what have I lost? I've played. I've played the thing I love. And it, it would always kind of bring me back there. And, and the love for it, again, came from reading. You know, my love for basketball came from watching these early games, you know, watching teams that I thought did it the right way. And my love for writing came from watching writers. And then you try to create your own version of that. I would hear sentences, the the first sentence of 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez goes like this. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, 
Colonel Aureliano Buendia would recall that distant afternoon when his father first took him to discover ice. And I would just think that is a perfect sentence. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, he doesn't get to the firing squad in that book till page 176, but you're hooked. Like, why is he in front of the firing squad? And then you've got his father took him to discover. And immediately you have this sentimental connection to fatherhood. You know, what did his father take him to discover? ice. And in, in his village, they had no ice. They, they were seeing it for the first time. It's a perfect sentence. And when I write, sometimes I'll hear that melody and think, how did he know to create that meandering sentence that is like a novel in itself? And so having a love for sentences like that, stories like that, hearing the music of a sentence like that, the way the clauses and phrases trickle down like a waterfall to that perfect word ice, which just ends it in this sibilant hail. You wake up in the morning thinking, what if I wrote a sentence like that? What if I wrote a story like that? What if I found my way into something? And if you fail, which I'm not going to write something as groundbreaking as that. What have I lost except I've gotten to play music for the day? And then when some people appreciate your music, appreciate your the game you play, ah, it's so rewarding to get that external validation. How much of your confidence is built of the external validation is hard to say once you've had some. I'm still weirdly confident as a basketball player, and I have not had a lot of external validation. You and I go play a game of horse right now. I like my chances. Well, let's go back to the New Yorker, because I would love to hear a healthy way to look at the rejection that comes with, hey, the story's not a good fit for us, because part of it is you know, having the confidence saying, I did it for me, not for them. But the other piece is, well, if I never take constructive feedback or if I don't learn from what they're looking for, how does that work in the writing world? And how do you see that working in the basketball world? Yeah, man, that's you get right to it, Mike. Those are great questions. Um, oh, it's funny. So I'm mostly a novelist. I've had uh, of my books, I've had seven novels, one book of short stories, and one nonfiction book. So short stories are not my venue. So let's say that's rebounding, you know, and I want to be, a, but I, I really work at that. I write a lot of short stories. And so, first of all, I know I'm not writing into my strength. So I do study other writers and I see, and usually when the New Yorker rejects a story, I'm like, yeah, I understand that. One of those stories that made best American short stories, I was like, you're wrong. <laughs> I said, that's a good story. Um, you rejected the wrong story. And did I take some joy in in that winning a major prize? So they, they read every magazine in the country and they choose the 20 of that year. And so th there were four or five New Yorker stories in there. But this particular story had run in a magazine called McSweeney's and they chose it. And I was like, you guys made a mistake. You know, you cut the wrong guy. And so part of it is proving them wrong, undoubtedly. But the other part is other times they've rejected stories and I've thought, yeah, they're right. This one's kind of thin. I need to rework this. If you're going to try to be on the biggest stage, then you have to have the humility. And I have always believed we think of humility and confidence as running on these parallel tracks or going in opposite directions. You either have humility or you have confidence. I've always believed they intersect, that you cannot be truly confident at what you do unless you have the humility to appreciate that you can get better. And the place where they intersect is where I'm often the happiest, where I got such amazing reviews for the, my last novel, The Cold Millions. No one knows that in my journal I wrote, 
this is a B plus, I could do better. So those, well, I now guess everybody who listens to the podcast knows, but that desire to keep doing better and to understand that if there is a platonic ideal of something, if there's some perfect version of it, of course you haven't achieved it, but you've strived and you've tried. And the idea that you might still get there keeps pushing. It's still painful when I get those New Yorker rejections and I keep every one. And they used to be a form letter. Then they were like a printed letter. And the last one that was rejected, I made it all the way to the final table read. It was me and another story. And they, they chose the other story. And then Harper's, which is another great magazine, ended up taking the story that got rejected. So I feel like I get closer all the time. And, and part of me sort of hopes I never publish there. Like, I love the idea of there being something unattainable as a motivation, as a goal. But again, we started talking about basketball and me saying that early realization that Someone's got to be on the losing side. And I kind of don't mind it as long as I get to play. And that's how I feel about writing. If I never get there, if I, you know, I'd love to win a, a big major prize like the Pulitzer Prize in fiction. If I never get there, I still play. I still made the varsity. And my coach will come along and say, I'm the last one playing at writing too, because I will just keep going until, until the ball doesn't bounce anymore. I'm reading a book right now called Range, and it's kind of the idea of early specialization is not what we thought it was, you know, the idea of yeah. the Tiger Woods maybe is not the best way to go. And I'm listening to your story, and I love how you always kind of knew you were going to be a writer. You always liked doing it. I think about my story, basketball, and people yeah. always tell me, hey, you got to play all these other sports which I did, you know, you throw football yeah. in the backyard, but I really love basketball. I wasn't specializing early because I was thought that was the, the best way to yeah. do it. I just love hoops. What, what are your thoughts on early specialization? It's funny. One of your other guests, this unknown guy named John Stockton, um, he and I uh, had kids in school at the same time. And I remember watching games with him and him saying, you know, I wish kids weren't just on AAU teams. I wish, and I coached his son, Sam, in baseball. I'm telling you, Sam was a great baseball player. And I loved coaching those kids in baseball. It was a sport I knew very little about. And this was Catholic school league. And so none of our kids played summer baseball. And we'd go up against these teams from Cataldo or someplace, and they would have, you know, first of all, you know, three of their guys would shave, you know, fifth, sixth grade baseball. And they had these guys that were my size. And, but our team just competed and we lost the first time to that team, like 28, nothing. And we lost the last game to him two to one. And that coach said, I've never seen a team improve like that. And it was the most rewarding thing to watch these kids, none of whom are going to even play high school baseball. I think maybe one or two did, but the rest, Sam Stockton went on to play basketball. My son was a cross country runner and and played soccer played sports i didn't know anything about and that just that sense of competing and making your body do something and playing a sport with great tradition you know, i did play every other sport just because in my house if you didn't play a sport you had to get a job and so i played football and then i broke two ribs and a finger <laughs> like on the second practice and just out of sheer fragility i tried to play a little bit of baseball but if you think having one eye hurts you in 
in uh, basketball, you've never tried to hit a curveball with one eye. It is, or I remember being in center field once and this ball came straight off the bat and I had no depth perception. I broke in, was going to catch it right over second base and it bounced off the wall, you know? <laughs> it was, uh, so I had kind of washed out of every sport in the spring by my junior year. And then the golf coach saw me wandering the hall and was like, you know, come on, you're going to play golf. And so at East Valley, we had this golf coach who would just look for kids who, had nothing else to do. And they'd take you to Goodwill and buy you a starter set and then take you in the gym and teach you how to hit a golf club. And uh, both my brother and I, my brother was really good. In fact, my brother tells this great story about the pro at the course would see us walking with our little Goodwill bags. And we didn't have straps. We just carried them by the handles because there's only like six clubs in this little starter set. And he used to call us the suitcasers. Here come the suitcasers. So, but I think playing those other sports just like even now, if you can get on a golf course, you can communicate. It's like a class escalator. You grew up a working class kid, but I can get out and play a golf game with just about anybody. And I think having those experiences, whether you succeed or not, this idea that if you play enough AAU games, you're going to all of a sudden, you do get more seasons than other people, but I do think you lose something. So sitting with Stockton and having him say, I wish these kids played football in the street and played, you know, he's such a traditionalist. And I, I have to agree. You know, the problem is you, you, know, you can't look at a group of kids and say that one is going to be the superstar. I don't know. I mean, but that ceiling, I don't know when you first realized that there was a level of basketball above you, but I think that's a really important moment too, when you realize that you're not going to be the best at something. And I have a friend who is a tennis prodigy who tells this story of showing up for like a U16 tennis tournament. And he looks, who's across from him? Boris Becker, 16-year-old named Boris Becker. And he's like, I'm the best tennis player here, <laughs> you know? And, and this guy is just playing at a level he can't quite achieve. And he always called it your Boris Becker moment. When is your Boris Becker moment? And I feel like mine was in sixth grade, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where I just thought, oh, there's a level that I might not ever get to. And I think what you do with that moment is really interesting. You know, does it sour you on the thing or do you keep playing? You keep loving it. I don't know. Did you, have, did you have a Boris Becker moment? Well, mine was when I first came to GU, you know, your MVP of your high school league, you think exactly. you're kind of pretty good. And then you come here and I realize everyone is better than me. And I thought I was the hardest worker. And then I have guys like Santangelo and Richie Fromm. And I'm like, there's a whole nother level. Um, but the cool thing was, is it didn't end my career because being around those guys, yeah. they just elevate you. You know, you, you either, you know, fall to the wayside and quit or you don't have a choice. You have to compete. And so yeah, that was really cool to see. There's another level. I don't know if I could be yeah. as good as these guys, but you put the time in. And then by your senior year, I'm not good like Richie Fromm. I'm not good like yeah. Santana. So I'm good like I am, but at that yeah. same level. And so I think was a little bit, maybe this is a good thing or a bad thing, but even the NBA guys, I look at that and I say, well, I, I bet you if I played with them, yeah. I could compete at that level. And maybe that's just a dream, but. But I think that's the great thing about a team sport too, is you see players who do what you can't do, but that doesn't mean there isn't something you can do that'll contribute to that group, which is the kind of player you were, certainly. You're like, oh, well, you know who's going to dive on that? Who's going to get to that ball? Who's going to be on the ground first? Which is another skill and another instinct. And I think similarly, you know, realizing so many players were taller than me, had 
better sort of fundamentals. I mean, the one thing I had was point guard hands. I, I remember shaking Stockton's hand one time. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can palm a basketball. Which, again, at 5'10", does not do you a lot of good, you know, standing there like Kareem, you know, looking around for who to pass to. But every other physical attribute was below average for a basketball player, you know? And so, yeah, but seeing that thing you can do and on a team sport, being able to contribute, being able to be even a good backup point guard is really valuable. They're pressing us. That was when I would get to see time is when they were pressing us because, you know, I had a pretty good handle and could get the ball above half, at least get the ball across half court and then disappear in a corner. Yeah. How much of your love of basketball stems from the community we live in, Hooptown, USA? I mean, this has got to be the mecca of basketball. We have the world's largest three-on-three tournament. We have Gonzaga. We have the national champ high school girls basketball. It, it's a really cool place to be. We home of John Stockton. Yeah. How much did that play into your love, do you think? Uh, that's interesting to say. I mean, so I grew up here in the 70s and early 80s. And so we lived for a while in Springdale and the, the uh, State B tournament was in Spokane. And so I, I remember going to the State B tournament. Springdale had a guy named Jerry Tuggle who was just so good. And we watched Jerry Tuggle in the 1974 State B tournament. And, and there are images like that that stick in your head that have to be for kids now. Um, I really felt it more as an adult. I was on the Hoopfest board for years and watching those brilliant accountants and lawyers just design this like incredible tournament. And I watched games at the old Boone Street bar, at the old um, uh, kennel, you know, and, and I remember going out for beers with Dan Fitzgerald and hearing these, you know, hilarious stories of him sending players to the Northtown Mall with free tickets to try to get people to go to games. And then some of the old Zags watching players come through. I think it's been so remarkable to see and pride I take in something like Hoopfest because that is a really democratic way to bring basketball. You know, anyone can play. And then, yeah, the just the games themselves. You know, I loved, I saw the Sports Illustrated story about Stockton's Sunday game. We used to rent court on the other side sometimes on Sundays, and we used to call ourselves the JV game. We knew what was going on on the other side there, you know, but we were just playing in our, uh, some of our old guys. But I've been playing with a group of guys for 30 years, and my brother, Kevin Blocker, several other, Todd Thompson, and just being out in Peaceful Valley, playing a game with those guys, watching us age watching us sort of slow down. Athletics can feel sort of cruel as you age because you lose certain things. But how you deal with loss is going to be how you are as a human being as you age. Watching my, I used to have the best first step, I thought. And watching that kind of dissipate and disappear and all of that. It's, I mean, there are so many lessons and you learn those in a place like Spokane because you just keep playing. You age with the people you came in with. And I remember playing, there was that court next to the uh, weight room at GU up above. And I remember playing in that, I was in that game one time and I'm backing up and Jeremy Pargo is coming at me. And I'm like, what other city would I be trying to figure out how to stop Jeremy Pargo on a break. 
And it really is incredible that this love of basketball seeps in and out that way. And that you have been in games with NBA guys. What other city does a guy who can't crack his own starting lineup? And I remember one time stalked and watching and there were, you know, we were kind of moving the ball. And I think he finally realized we were all too embarrassed to shoot in front of him. Like the ball just kept moving around the outside. No one wanted to take the shot because he just happened to be walking by, you know, and finally, I think he said, would somebody shoot, you know? (laughs) And yeah, that, I think from John on down that there's just been that great pyramid of doing it the right way and of basketball. Did any of us think Gonzaga would be, you know, 30 and 0, you know, threatening that Indiana team that I fell in love with for undefeated season? I don't think so, but it kind of makes sense. You know, if you do it the right way, the right things kind of happen. It's marvelous. Realizing my son didn't love basketball and that he loved soccer was a little painful, but I've been through it with both my daughters, um, neither one of which really liked the game very much. And uh, and then my son was pretty good, but then he just loved the movement of soccer. And, and at first that was really tough for me. And then so loved him liking a sport I didn't know as much about because I could watch it without the stress you know, without knowing what he should be doing. So I, I think it's a really athletic town, it's, and, but basketball holds this incredible special place. I can't explain it, but it, it feels really fortunate to be here. You know? Well, I have a similar story as yours playing with Jeremy Pargo. I got to go up north to Whitworth and play with Jess Walter and David Duchovny. <laughs> and I'm like, That's right. yeah. where else in America <laughs> am I be able to play with famous author, famous That's actor, right. we got Dr. Shan Furch in there. And I'm like, yeah. What a cool city for hoops. Yeah. Yeah. He was, it's funny. He he and I have totally, we still text all the time about basketball and he played actually at his, at Princeton, they used to have a JV and he was on the JV, really good high school basketball player. And so, yeah, we kind of connected through a movie I was writing and working on that he was going to be in. And so we still talk hoops and we've played half a dozen times in New York. And then he was just passing through Spokane and he's like, uh, hey, I said, yeah, I'm going to play. And so I brought him. But I remember people looking like, that guy looks like David Duchovny. <laughs> I didn't, you know, you don't, didn't really know how to, how to introduce him. But yeah, it's like the basketball players find each other. And we would always joke, just how terrible basketball is in Hollywood movies. And he's like, I know, I keep saying like, at least cast me, at least I have an okay looking jumper, you know, not one of those uh, look like I'm delivering a pizza or something. And uh, uh, But yeah, that was fun. That was a fun day. Yeah. Are you ever going to write a novel with basketball as the background? I have these three short stories. I have written a, a series of short stories with basketball in it. I've tried a few times. It, it's an interesting sport. Like baseball tends to be the sport that is the most literary for some reason. So many baseball novels. Basketball is so fluid. It's so improvisational. It really is more like jazz. So there are actually great poets who write about basketball. Um, There are some good basketball novels, but as with most things, the basketball kind of has to be in the background a little bit. Same thing with movies. Like Hoosiers is a really good movie. But it's also kind of expected, like, oh, is the small team going to triumph? If I do write a basketball novel, it will be about more than basketball. It will be about that approach to life where a kind of aesthetic beauty drives what you do. My wife will come in and say, who are you rooting for? And I'll stare at her like, I'm just watching, (laughs) you know? I almost never 
root. I root hard for Gonzaga when my beloved Eastern Eagles were in the tournament. I was rooting for the Groves brothers to send the Kansans back uh, weeping to their locker room. Uh, I root for my teams, but I'm not one of those people who feels like it's some great loss. And so capturing that in a novel about sports would be fun. The writing that I've done about basketball is about a rec league team called uh, the Foaming 40s, which are a bunch of guys in their 40s. And they're all kind of losers and afterthoughts, but they're still playing city rec league. And they do things like recruit. One of them has an ex-wife who's dating a former a Spanish league professional. And so they're like, get your ex's husband to be in the, you know, so the whole drama will be, is this guy going to, you know, demean himself by asking his ex-wife's new boyfriend to play? Of course he is. And, you know, there's one game where they're all in their forties and they're losing to these 20 somethings who are sponsored by a uh, dispensary, by a pot dispensary. And they've They've taken Sharpies and written numbers on their bare chests and they're all totally stoned playing in skateboard shoes. And the fact that these guys are losing to them is just crushing them. So it's been really fun to write those stories about guys like my brother and me and for whom basketball has been a way to look at life and not just a goal or I like to say I've lost to every good player in the city and there's something to that you have to be in the game to be able to do that so that's kind of what these stories are like one ran in ESPN the magazine one ran in Grantland which was also connected with ESPN and then one ran I believe in Harper's so they've run in good places so I've thought about kind of finishing out that collection and having a whole group of stories about male aging and sport through this basketball team. So I, that might be a book I finished pretty soon. I feel like I don't know the end of that story yet. Still sort of playing with those, where those stories go, because again, I, I almost feel like the end of the book of that book will be them letting go of the last part of the game. And how gracefully you let go of something you loved is as important as how intensely you threw yourself into it, I think. And so watching these guys, you know, have to give up basketball. For me, the hardest thing, I played pretty hard through my 30s and 40s. And five years ago, I was lunging for a ball and this terrible bad eye of mine, I can't see things coming on my left side. And a shoulder hit me right here and uh, right in the cheekbone. And I broke my zygomatic arch and my eye socket and my jaw. I broke my face. It sounded like someone breaking a stalk of celery inside my head. And I had one of those dented in cheeks. And that sort of stopped me playing rec league and playing like at a high level. Because again, the fact that it had never happened before, not being able to see on your left side that I'd never taken a hard shot like that was, you know, really something. But that I had found out I had a small heart issue as we you know, as we've talked about. And those two things, I just thought, well, I'm not going to go play in the, the hardest games anymore. So that's when my brother and I organized this do not touch basketball. So if you come at me and I put a forearm in your back, that's a foul on me. If I'm standing there and you back into me, that's a foul on you. You can't touch at all. And now we've got a group of old guys who play this style. And during the pandemic, we would just go to opposite ends of the court and shoot to 100 twos and threes. So we're shooting on, on opposite ends of the court. So we find a way to keep playing 
until, until I can't lift my arms up to get a jump shot off. But that idea of letting go of something you love a bit, a bit at a time and still loving it is, I think there's a bigger lesson there that I'm really interested to see how the fictional characters deal with that. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the listeners don't care, but I have to share this short story because the whole time you're talking about writing, I'm like, I'm getting emotional for some reason. I just love your description, <laughs> but I'm thinking about one of my good friends, Craig Fortier. He's a basketball yeah. coach here. His son is an avid reader. And the whole time you're talking, I'm like, his son would love this episode. But the fun thing that Craig and I have together is we play no touch one-on-one. Oh, do you? And he hates it. He was really upset about it. But, you know, I I had an injury at the time. And so the same thing. If I drive in and I stiff arm him, but I touch him. That's on you. It's it's a foul. And then vice versa. If he puts his hand on my shoulder, you know, it's a foul on him. And so if I really want to upset him, I talk about how I'm undefeated and no touch one-on-one. And so the, now, now Craig has to listen to this episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. So then I got my friend Kevin playing it too. And now we all kind of love it, especially for guys our age. And it's funny, like it can be hard, you know, offense calls fouls and most pickup games. And then I don't know if you ever played in the coaches league at Spokane Falls Community College, but that was defense calls fouls, which was interesting. It was a different way to keep a game because if if you hacked someone and didn't call it, you knew what was going to happen the next time down. So it polices you in a different way. Well, this game's really interesting because you almost always know. You know if you touch somebody. And I'll like just this barely graze an arm on a jump shot and I'll be like free throws. So I'll be like, yeah. And it really does. Yeah, And the thing I love about it is the thing I've always loved. One of the reasons I hope that, I don't know when this will air, but you and I don't know if Gonzaga won or not. But if they did, it will be because the purest form of basketball won. The best shooters. That's what I loved about this Golden State team. There was no doubt that if they won, it was going to be because the best shooters won. And as much as people, you know, may miss the Anthony Mason Nick years, I just don't, you know, I just, I want to see athletes make great plays. But when it's just two guys shooting and they can't touch each other. So I think you and Craig should play Ralph. I think the last, so we did play that to come to game and I didn't Spalding and I play um, you and Richie Fromm in a game once. And I feel like that, that was the other game where it was, we were kind of holding our own, if I remember right. The, uh, I think so. Spalding, he, now that's a good athlete too. I mean, yeah, he yeah. physically just looks like, you know, chiseled up. And those yeah. were such fun days where before um, maybe all the insurance companies knew what was going on and now they have to kind of tighten it down. But yeah. we had so many great games in the field house and the day court up outside the, the weight day room. Court, the, the noon game at Gonzaga would bring out real estate agents. And I still remember that there this guy taking the ball out of the basket and just going to do a full court pass and just throwing it into someone else's face and just knocking him straight over. But yeah, some of those games at Gonzaga and yeah, for ham and eggers like me to just wander in and then you're trying to figure out what to do with Jeremy Pargo. Or I remember throwing an alley-oop to Josh Heitfeld and thinking like, I hope I get this right and realizing, oh, you really can't miss, you know, <laughs> if it's anywhere up there, he's going to get it. Just thinking like, how often do I get to throw an alley-oop that Heitfeld, that a major college player dunks? Yeah, I've always said that the best neighborhoods are where there's no, where the wealthy and the poor kind of blend together. You know? So that's what I love about Spokane is that you're never more than two blocks from a bad neighborhood. And people in Seattle think that's the worst thing ever. I think it's the best thing ever. And there's a similar thing with basketball, like up, down. And I think that's why young people can aspire to so much because you see those guys around town, you see those games, you go to Hoop Fest, you can walk down 
to the elite court and uh, see great players. I don't know. I think that that's one of the secrets is that it's accessible. And I think if I'm not mistaken, you guys ended up winning, but I think it was disputed. I think you backed off Spalding because you realized that you were not, that, uh, that my dangerous set shot three pointer was uh, more than you could handle. <laughs> well, the only question I have, and I'm not sure is did Richie and I fight each other? Because I think every time I've been on the court with him, we end up fighting. I remember really? they, yeah. we used to have open practices at Gonzaga where people could come and watch press could watch whatever. Yeah. Now, of course, parents can't even come watch, but yeah, yeah. we had this rebound drill that came down to him and I, and the ball was rolling towards half court. Whoever gets it wins the drill. And so I start running. He kind of grabs onto me. I grab onto him. Next thing we tackle down and I had ripped off his shirt and he has me in a headlock and the ball is now at the other end of the court and we're just wrestling at half court. But the thing was, it wasn't like we were, you know, I, well, at the time I wanted to kill him, but then practice yeah, yeah. is over and we're, you know, it's just Richie. It's fine. So, yeah. I, I could see us probably fighting each other and trying to fight you guys. I think if I remember you, you guys did start wrestling over who was going to be humiliated by me next. No, no. I think, I think it was a pretty casual game. It was, I think we were all raining down threes. If I remember right. So that's that, about right. Yeah. Yeah. But that passion that you get to in sport and that's when you know you're with the, I mean, I've argued with all the guys that I play with and the funny thing, you have brothers. So, you know, like that com the competitive juices that brothers can get. And my brother and I managed to be really competitive without ever getting in a fist fight. And then the one time we got into it, we played in this rec league guy with a guy who was so physical still. But I said to my brother, you play like that. And he said, that hurt my feelings more than anything because that guy's cheap and my brother is not cheap. And to be physical and not cheap, you know, so we, we could push each other, we could throw the ball at each other, we could yell. But me saying that he played like a cheap guy was, you know, that was beyond, I just apologize. I'm sorry, that was over the line. <laughs> you know, like we could, we really could punch each other. But if you say you played cheap, that was just beyond the pale. I love it. Well, tell me about, Cold Millions. Yeah, the Cold Millions is um, set in Spokane. You know, I often have these kind of big ideas for things. My And this one was, you know, I knew about the 1909 free speech protests in Spokane. At the time, the city was really driven between the wealthy and the incredibly poor. And there were so many itinerant workers, hobos in Spokane, thousands of them. And they were sort of used for their labor. And then in the fall, when harvest was over, they were driven from town by a pretty brutal police department. And they also, at the time, you had to pay to get a job. You had to pay a dollar just to go get a job. And then often the foreman would have a deal with the job agent who charged you and would fire you. So this early union, the Industrial Workers of the World, which was the first union to represent women, to represent people of color. Before you had to be a white man and not, and not an immigrant to be in one of these unions. And this union said, we'll represent every, anyone. So they came to Spokane and led by this fiery 19-year-old labor activist named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who 10 years before she had the right to vote, was leading these protests for workers' rights. They battled against the city officials who arrested more than 500 of them, threw them in jail. But in the end, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn 
sort of prove the corruption of the Spokane police. And, and so knowing about this story in 1909 and watching the way in the last few years, the United States was felt like it was kind of riven in half. I, I thought it was the echoes would be an interesting and great thing to kind of return to in fiction. I also, my dad has severe Alzheimer's now and his favorite form was always the Western and he was a union guy. And so I I, I want to write a kind of union Western with these big archetypal characters and to catch Spokane at this moment when it was still a frontier town, but on its way to this big modern city. And I would see old photos and postcards of the teeming down, downtown streets of Spokane. You cannot believe how, what a thriving city this was in 1909. It was doubling in size every five or six years. And, and you know, just by the architecture, all the turn of the 20th century buildings. And so I wanted to capture this city at this moment of kind of ex- population explosion and and this kind of crash of civilization. And then also just the idea of these people fighting for the basic rights of people with the least. And so that's kind of where the idea for the novel came from. And it's done in very well. We're talking to some people about a possible TV series based on it now, which would be really cool. And um, yeah, the novel was you know picked as one of the best of the year by the New York Times and the Washington Post and was you know on some bestseller lists. And so, yeah, it's been... Uh, I, I continue to marvel at uh, how a kid from Spokane, you know, can have uh, this success. And it's done really well. And it's been really cool to watch Spokane people embrace it, you know, because it takes them to a moment of history that I think we're all sort of aware of, but lays it out in this different way. Well, Jess, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, making me laugh, uh, oh, taking man. a trip down memory lane. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Well, I could go to my website, jesswalter.com. Uh, that's probably a good place. Or probably see me in a coffee shop staring into a latte trying to figure out what to write next. Grocery stores. <laughs> uh, but yeah, jesswalter.com is a good spot. There are, uh, And then Auntie's Books, of course, has uh, my book and then the books of so many other great authors. It's a great writing city as well as a great basketball city. So, And then you can probably see me at Peaceful Valley playing a game uh, against my brother and uh, no touch talking no touch I want to play that with you I want to get on the court and see if our rules are the same so my crossover is a lot less wicked when the guy's four feet away I've found out so my defense is a lot less wicked than it was about (laughs) 30 years ago so I think it's going to be a pretty even match you are always an underrated offensive player you have you have a nice stroke I always thought you had one of the prettiest jumpers so Uh, well let's can we end the podcast right there I'm gonna gonna cut that and splice it a couple times over that'll be the whole episode you have one of the prettiest jumpers yeah yeah that's from that's an ugly jump shot I can't even look at that thing (laughs) now that's a wrap on episode 81 And I hope you'll join me next week where I dive into nutrition and give practical advice for how players can optimize their performance with a few simple eating recommendations. I've mentioned before the basketball nutrition game I use with my players. And in this episode, I break down the principles behind it and give an easy-to-use eating template for players to be their best. And to all of you who are committed, we'll earn your X.